Hello, everyone. I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction. Today I'm speaking with Sarah Kennedy, the author of the Cross and the Crown series, which includes three books to date. The Altarpiece appeared in 2013, and City of Ladies in 2014. The third book, The King's Sister, comes out this month. Books about Henry VIII and his wives are legion. What distinguishes the Cross and the Crown series is that it does not look directly at Henry's much-discussed divorce of his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, or his tempestuous affair with and second marriage to Anne Boleyn. Instead, the series examines the effects of Henry's intense pursuit of a male heir, which led to his split with the Catholic Church, on the lives of the monks and nuns who suddenly found themselves without a home due to the dissolution of the monasteries. The series opens in a Yorkshire comment. Because we don't want to spoil the story for people who have not yet discovered the first two books, I will read this time from the beginning of Book One, The Altarpiece. May 1535, North Yorkshire. Mount Grace Priory was cold as a crypt, despite the gold-shot tapestries on the stone walls. Sister Catherine gathered the woolen shawl around her shoulders. The candle on the oak infirmary table guttered, and she cupped her hand around the flame. When the light steadied, she stepped to the window and tucked cloths between the shutters. She placed her ear against the wood for a moment. Nothing. It must have been the wind. The soldiers had surely gone to the inn for the night. She had a few hours at least. Catherine tiptoed to the door and peered down the long corridor, but her eyes could not adjust to the blank darkness beyond her workroom. So she turned once more to her task. She laid out her receipt books and measured them with her eyes. They could be hidden easily enough. She ran her palm over the worn leather covers and opened one. She had drawn the herbs and flowers herself, and her finger traced the bright veins she had penned into the daffodil leaves on one page. She had copied details of their altarpiece in a corner of each page. The Magdalene with her golden jar of ointment, a cherry tree with Joseph reaching to pluck the fruit, a Christ child sitting in the crook of his mother's elbow, the Madonna always in the upper right-hand corner. The script was black and firm, and Catherine read through a few of her receipts. Yes, she had them by heart. She could do without the books, for now. If only she could find a way to practice physic without losing her head. She stacked them, lifted the pile, and unlatched the door. Stepping into the darkness, she slid along the interior wall of the nun's walk until she reached the dormitory. She hesitated, listening. An animal rustled along the garden's edge, a weasel or a rat. Too low to be seen, not a man, not yet. She had already loosened the latch, and she slipped inside without a sound. And now, please join me in welcoming Sarah Kennedy. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for agreeing to talk with me today. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, I should mention before we start that uh, some of the praise for your books uh, comes from Lee Smith, uh, with whom I had a wonderful conversation about her novel, Guests on Earth, in January 2015. And if anyone would like to listen to that interview after this one, you can find it by going to http slash slash newbooksinhistoricalfiction.com, clicking on the tab that says List of Interviews, and scrolling down until you see Lee's name. Um, but tell me, how do you know her? Well, I've, I've met Lee several times at conferences and readings, um, and we've had really nice conversations, at, you know, mostly about her fiction and my poetry. Um, and I, I have reviewed several of her books, and I've always been a fan of her writing. Um, and when I, when I moved to fiction, uh, she was the 
you know, she was one of the people who, uh, who came to mind um, because I've always liked her work so much. So I sent her all of my novels, and she was kind enough to um, write some good words about them. That's great. Um, she was another person I really enjoyed talking to. She was so uh, she's a very <laughs> she's lively <wonderful>. person. <laughs> um, so, in general, uh, please tell us something about yourself. You teach literature and creative writing. So, how does that part of your life um, fit in with your your decision to become a writer yourself? Um, well, I, yeah, I do teach both literature and creative writing, and I like teaching both because they're they're very very different. Um, but as as a writer, I guess, you know, for me, I had to sort of fuse um, the two sides of, of my life, my creative writing side and my, and my literature side. And, and actually teaching really energizes me. Um, I really like reading student work, and I like having conversations uh, with students about the things that they like in what they're studying, the things that they don't like. Um, and that really informs me as as not not as I'm drafting so much, but certainly as I'm editing, um, because my students tend to be very uh, thoughtful and insightful readers, and my creative writing students read a lot. Um, so I'm always gaining ideas and, um, and, and insights from what they've read and how they respond to it. And they tend to be very open about how they respond to things. So your website says that you began by writing historical poetry, uh, seven books of historical poetry. What is historical poetry? Well, historical poetry is not that different from historical fiction. It's just a lot shorter. Um, you know, I started out as a poet, and I would actually say that my first two books are much more autobiographical and lyrical. And um, I think when I got to my third book, I just got sick of myself, <laughs> and, and I wanted to write about the world because I was also a literature student. Um, I didn't I didn't get my MFA until after I had my PhD, and there were all of these sort of suggested stories I kept getting hints of when I was doing research. And um, one summer, I um, was working in Wales at the National Library because I wanted to find out more about the 18th century, which I was teaching. And I was reading all of these recipe books um, that women had in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I started hearing these women's voices in my head. Um, and, and I couldn't not write them down. And at that time, I was, I was still working very, very solidly in poetry. Um, so historical poems for me are, are um, they can be lyrical. My bent is narrative. And so they tend to, to, um, to tell short stories. Um, and I, I can share one with you. Um, it, this is from my 2013 book called The Gold Thread. Um, and this, this book is largely made up of poems about women in history who were uh, mystics and saints and uh, women who were sort of unusual in the church. And the one I'm going to read you is about Julian of Norwich, who was a, um, she was an, an anchoress, uh, which is a woman who renounced the world. Um, and Julian had visions, and she wrote, you know, one of the first books by a woman in the English language. But she spent most of her adult life um, in a cell. And from this cell, she could hear mass from the church, but she could also talk to people and give people advice and stuff. She was really a fascinating woman. Um, so here, here's an example of a historical poem. It's called Julian in Her Cell, 1405. Streaks of cloud, a strange occluded sun, omen for storm by evening. I should summon my scribe, the day leans all ready from its height, 
and yet my mind's sight is deviled by the image of a king, how leaderly he acts. I see him playing the religious man called by God to battle. Bishops at his flanks and France named once again the enemy. He performs it well, but my memory runs to Herod, and the murmur of usurper reaches even my lonely door. Shall we have another year of war? The age of emperor ruled long in Rome. It is written, when statesmen looked to Olympus for their crowns, the cities beneath them burned. I must rise from this window, turn again to my script, but the sky darkens as I watch. Look how the swallows swirl, an illumination, a book of hours, a rumor of invasion in their wings. But this is no era of prophecy, no time of vision, no day to give advice to those who grieve or fear or love. The world's word says, render unto Caesar what is God's, says sin lives within resistance to power, says silence is the sign of all true subjects. Do not be deceived. The devil appeared to me in smoke and fire, and as I watched, breathed the pageant into being, wealthy men and their sons of wealth in rich, dark suits of office. I saw autumn in their eyes and hell, and look, now it begins to rain just as the birds forecast, just as the sun promised. The boy in the garden is casting a sour look at heaven, just as the traveling and players once did to foretell a tragic future. So that's written in, in the voice of Julian of Norwich. Um, and she, she's sort of, you know, seeing what's going outside, on outside her window, but also prophesying some larger political and cultural issues. Um, and you know, not all of my historical poems are written in the voice of a historical figure, but there's usually a very, very close point of view connection. Um, so that's what a historical poem is. Oh, I love that, actually. I, Julian is a, is a very interesting character, as you say. And at some point, I'll have to talk to you about those recipe books, because that's actually what I did my dissertation on is the Russian domestic oh, handbook. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. They're so interesting. They're just fascinating. Yeah, they are absolutely. So, so how does how does the poetry feed into the fiction? Did it make it easier to write fiction, harder to write fiction? How how what is the connection there? Um, well, the connection was is chronological. I mean, I, I actually wrote a whole series of poems about the women who wrote these recipe books that I was researching in Wales, and um, <laughs> I had a I had a friend, and I was in a writers group with her. And, um, and I was writing these poems, writing these poems, and um, she said, you know, Sarah, you really ought to write a novel. And I said, oh, no, 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 I can't possibly write a novel. Um, but I did notice that the lines were getting longer <laughs> and the poems were getting kind of longer. And I think at some point I just reached the right-hand margin and that was it. And after that, um, it, was, it was fiction. Um, and, you know, I still love poetry and I still write poetry sometimes, um, but it's 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 been fiction ever since. So I just kind of made the leap to the right-hand margin, and that was it. That's great. So um, how did your interest in historical and Renaissance poetry lead you specifically to the altarpiece? Well, I was doing research on um, nuns. I had written a <laughs> I had written a, a series of poems about witches and the witchcraft trials. And then I wrote this book, The Gold Thread, which was about saints and mystics and women who were unusual in the church. And, of course, at the same time, I'm teaching the 16th century all the time. And at some point, it, it occurred to me that in the research and writing and traveling I was doing, 
there was not much information about nuns. I mean, ordinary nuns, just everyday nuns, not mystics or, you know, powerful women or anything. And so I started doing more research, and I thought, you know, there's just not much here. Um, and at the time, there wasn't. Uh, I think that the, uh, the field of study of, of nuns, particularly in England during the Reformation, has, has really picked up steam. But when I was doing research, there just wasn't much. And I was, <laughs> I, I kept having this image in my mind of this young woman standing in a church porch, looking down the road through the window, and she can see men coming up the road. And she knows that those are Henry VIII's men, probably sent by Thomas Cromwell, and that her life is about to change. And, um, and that's where the idea of the altarpiece came from. And I just could not get this woman's image out of my head, so I had to write her down. Well, that's great. So was the altarpiece your first published novel or your first finished novel? Yes, it was. I don't know if I would say it's my first finished novel. I have, <laughs> I have another series I'm kind of working with, but it's very different. Um, and I've put it aside um, because Catherine's picking up all of my imagination right now. But yes, the, the Altarpiece was my first published novel. So let's talk about um, Catherine, uh, because she is the central character of all three books mm-hmm. that you produced so far. And uh, she's a nun at the Mount Grace Priory in, in northern Yorkshire. So... Um, you just sketched the opening image of the novel. So what actually is happening to her uh, in that early passage that I read? And how does that relate to the problem that I mentioned in the introduction of Henry VIII's quest for a male heir? Well, Henry VIII's quest for a male heir is, of course, what led to the divorce from Catherine of Aragon. Um, and it was a long, protracted uh, uh series of events, which finally ended up in him, you know, basically kicking Catherine out. Um, And the talk, of course, you know, had been around for a long time. People knew that he was, he was seeking to separate from, from Catherine of Aragon. And of course, this, this would have really, um, you know, been a kind of desperate situation for the nuns and priests in England, because their livelihood depended on the church. And you know, I don't think that, that people were widely aware that he was going to simply seize the convents and monasteries uh, at, you know, at the time that he broke from Rome. Um, but by the time Catherine of Aragon was sort of out of the picture and he had married Anne Boleyn, it was becoming very clear that power was being centralized in the crown. Um, you know, before Henry broke away from Rome, there, there were kinds of checks and balances on power in England. Um, the church was very, very wealthy and very, very powerful. And the king had, you know, wealth and power. And then there were the great lords who had huge, you know, estates out in far-flung areas of the country. And, and they all sort of contended for power. When Henry broke away from Rome, he seized all of that power. And so he had this great centralization of government under Henry VIII. And, of course, for um, monks... There was some wiggle room because they could convert if they could, you know, ease their consciences enough to do it and become priests in the Church of England. Well, that option wasn't there for nuns. Um, now, if they came from wealthy families, they could probably go home. Um, if they were, if they were um, high-ranking in the convent, they were supposed to get some kinds of pensions. Um, and all of the nuns were supposed to get a pension of some kind. But in order to get this pension, you had to get to an urban center like York, um, you had to find a scribe um, because you had to pay somebody to write you out a receipt to get your money. You had to find the place where your money was available and hope that the money was actually there. 
Um, and for the ordinary nuns, the money wasn't much. Um, and we just don't know what happened to most of them. Uh, you know, they just kind of disappear. So, you know, for some of these people, it really seemed like a life and death change. You know, they were going to be thrown out of their homes. They were going to lose their livelihoods. They were going to lose their callings. Um, and they didn't really have any options. And what is Catherine like as a personality, uh, her age, her experience, and so on, when we first meet her in Altabees? Well, when we first meet her, she's in her very early 20s. Um, and she's, you know, she's living up in this little town in North Yorkshire. Um, she's never been much of anywhere. Um, she's never seen the ocean. <laughs> I mean, people just didn't travel that much. And, of course, she's grown up in a convent. Um, she was you know, found at the church door, um, and though, even though she knows that she's the prioress's favorite, um, she's very shy. Uh, she hasn't been out much. Um, she's very scholarly. She likes books. She likes to be alone. She likes to be in her garden. Um, she's very thoughtful and quiet, um, but she has a real, she has a real core, um, self-confidence, I would say. And she gets that partly from the prioress who, who pushes her hard. The prioress is not, not really indulgent of her, um, except insofar as she uses her mind. And the, you know, the prioress tells her you have to study things. Um, you have to learn things. You have to learn how to do things. So she's, a, she's kind of a 16th century nerd, I guess. <laughs> but she's a nice nerd. When we first meet her, she's worried about hiding her uh, receipt books. And uh, now I know where this comes from, because in the 16th century, uh, these receipt books were, I mean, receipt was the old word for both recipe and remedy. And so, and the two things were very much connected, food and medicine, because the medicine was mostly herbal. And so uh, housewives had these books where they kept their favorite recipes and also their favorite remedies and so on. Mm-hmm. And so we are introduced to her immediately as a, a, a doctor, really, although she doesn't have formal medical training, in part because right. she's a woman and in part because it barely existed then. So um, what made you decide to give her this interest in medicine? What, does, what is that... In, well, I guess I guess part of it was my own background in researching these recipe books. I I found the the personalities that were revealed in them fascinating, um, and the the amount of work that women did in not only feeding people but healing people was really really remarkable. And you see the traces of entire lives in these recipe manuscripts. Um, so I, I guess I guess it it came out of that research project that you know these these women were really fascinating to me because we sort of forget sometimes that, um, you know, before the 18th century, really, um, you know, women had a lot of knowledge and they were really the, the, the place that the family went to and often, you know, whole communities went to in order to, um, to gain knowledge about the body and healing the body. So I wanted, I wanted to give her that um, because I wanted her to have some special knowledge and interest that was not only beautiful, uh, but also useful, uh, because Catherine is always trying to see both the beautiful and the useful in everything. Um, and that's what I saw over and over and over again in these, in these actual recipe manuscripts that I looked at. And I just, I found it a fascinating uh, part of history. So what is it like to be a woman with medical knowledge in uh, the 1530s? Well, it would be, it, it would be tricky. Um, 
she would be sought out because especially, you know, and I'm imagining this little town in the north of England, um, it's a village really, uh, where there aren't that many resources. And if you can just imagine, I mean, you're cut off from everything. London is a long way away. The continent of Europe is a long way away. Um, it's very, very cold and dark in the winter. The days are very, very short, and the winters are very, very long. Um, you know, people would have to struggle to stay alive. And if you've got somebody with a certain kind of knowledge and skill that helps people stay alive, she's going to be a really frequently sought out uh, resource. And um, so she would have a certain, a certain kind of power and authority because people would come to her. Um, and I'm imagining this convent being very isolated. And so the rules and regulations of um, cloistering are probably relaxed a little bit. They probably are not really following the rules, but they're doing what they have to do to survive and be part of this community. Um, at the same time, there's real danger um, in seeming to know too much or being too good at healing, um, especially for a woman. Now, you know, witches were not... The witchcraft trials were not that active in England. It was a very different model from what happened on the continent and in Scotland. But there was a lot of folk belief in, um, you know, what was called white magic, which was good, and black magic, which was bad. Um, and there are lots and lots of belief systems that could activate suddenly for good or ill, depending on what somebody had done. Um, and when you begin to intervene in the body, and uh, maybe cause people to live or be accused of causing someone to die, uh, it puts you in a real dangerous situation. So she always has to be very careful about what she's doing and under whose auspices and um, under whose eye. Yes, and there is this kind of overlap uh, between medicine and religion, which you're hinting at with this, with the business of, of witchcraft, because... The church itself believes that it's it's basically God's will whether you live or die, and yeah. so so this feeds into the religious conflict that we were talking about just a little bit earlier. And I'd like to approach that from your character, the prioress um, Christina, and uh-huh. how she is um, relating to this problem. Because you know, from a modern perspective, I, it's hard to imagine what would be comparable to having your king, who is supposedly divinely anointed by God to rule, suddenly break with the only church that you've ever known, the only religious establishment that has any real validity in your world. Right. And it not only has religious validity in Christina's world, it's her source of power. Um, Women who moved up in the convent actually had quite a lot of power. They were managers. They kept the books, um, they handled money, they handled trade, they um, handled the, the politics of the convent itself. You know, prioresses and abbesses could have quite a lot of power. And Christina is a woman whose family um, has, has died out in the male line. She's the daughter, um, and she has no brothers. And she was put into the convent as a young woman with quite a lot of money. She came from a a wealthy family, but then the family died out because she had no brother. And the Overtons, who are who are the the villains of the piece, um, have bought up that that land and are seeking to expand. So she sees the Overtons partly as her enemies and partly as her allies, 
two of the Overton sisters are in the convent. So she's the, the prioress over them. But she has, she has made her, her power and her life and her career in the convent, and she's been very successful at it. For a small convent, they're, they're getting along pretty well. So for her, it's, it's a loss not only of her, her home and her livelihood, but also her autonomy and authority, because there isn't any comparable place in the Reformed Church as there is for men. So it's a loss of everything for Christina. And uh, she, you know, she deeply resents it because she doesn't have a home to go to anymore because the Overtons have bought it and her family is dead. And the Overtons will be taking over the priory as well, is that well, they, they've got a claim in on it. The, the priory, once it's seized, goes to the crown. And then what Henry VIII and his, his um, henchmen did was redistribute those properties to their allies. And it decreased the, uh, the opposition from big landholders out in the, in the country because Henry now had bargaining chips in these pieces of property that he could grant to his allies. So, yeah, the, the, there's no way she's going to have any of this land. I mean, she's a woman, she's single, she's a nun. There's no way she's going to have any of this. So um, before we move on to the later books in the series, could you talk a little bit about the altarpiece itself? The, the title comes from the Priory's uh, prize possession, and we won't talk about what happens to it because that's the crucial question of the book is what happens to it. Uh-huh. Um, but I'd like to talk about it as, um, first of all, what it is, and then how it, um, how it operates in the novel. Is it basically a MacGuffin in which, you know, the, the thing that people are looking for that, that causes conflict, or does it have some symbolism about the, the story as a whole? Well, there is simply, I mean, it is a physical thing. It's a, it's a physical, it's a three-part wooden pan, uh, panel, and it's hinged, and it's big, and it has a picture of the Virgin and, and the, the baby Jesus in the center of the panel. And this would have sat on a big altarpiece, and what they have done is nailed it to the wall because it's very, very valuable, and it's getting old. And so they've had it affixed to the wall, which is where it was. And it is a valuable thing. It's worth money, uh, which is one of the reasons why they have it fixed, so somebody can't just walk in and, and take it, um, though somebody does. Uh, but it, it's also the, the image that Catherine has grown up with. And because Mary is the central figure rather than Christ or one of the saints, she has this female figure who's the mother of God, and she has, you know, as she says to her friend Anne, I've prayed under her eyes all my life. Uh, and so Mary becomes a, a sign for Catherine that women do have a central place, not only on earth, but in heaven. And this altarpiece has been the sort of guiding image for her. And when it disappears, it leaves a big gap <laughs> in the wall of the church, but it also leaves this huge gap in Catherine's understanding. And it both symbolizes her and also this gap in the church hierarchy once Henry has reformed the church because there isn't a place for a powerful woman anymore. There isn't any place for a woman in authority anymore. And certainly the icons of the Virgin Mary, which were very, very important in the medieval and early Renaissance church, um, are, mostly, are mostly destroyed. Um, Mary is, is jettisoned from, um, uh, from the worship service, basically. So it's, you know, it's everything that's happening to Catherine, both 
externally and internally are centered in the image of that altarpiece. That's great. She also, there's also a pun there in that she has to alter over the course of the book. Um, she has to alter herself. Um, and it's the loss of the altarpiece that, that sort of sends her into that alteration. That's very clever. <laughs> I didn't pick that one up. That's good. <laughs> So, so we'll we'll leave the altarpiece there because we don't want to give away spoilers. Um, okay. There is one tiny spoiler in that Catherine is the heroine of two more books. So right. Um, but we'll we'll leave all of the the fate of the rest of the characters uh, for people to discover on their own. Okay. And move on to City of Ladies, which uh, begins four years later in 1539 and uh, opens with a rather grisly corpse. Um, the title comes from a very famous medieval work about women uh, by Christine de Pizan. Mm-hmm. And uh, Catherine, in fact, has something that she calls her city of ladies. Um, right. So tell us what you would like us to know about the beginning of the story and the setup. Well, in the beginning of City of Ladies, uh, Catherine has decided that she's going to make a sort of secular convent if she can't have a sacred one. She's still completely devoted to the education of women and girls. And she wants to make her new secular home into a place where women can gather and where women's education is one of the goals. And this corpse um, sort of lets her know that not everyone approves of this or agrees with this. And uh, and it's not just men who disapprove of it. Women are worried about it, too, and worried about what might be happening uh, with this gathering of women in Catherine's house. Um, she's, she's back near another village, which is called Havenston, and it's named after her, uh, after the, um, the prioress's family. Um, they haven't changed the name, even though the, the ownership is now with the Overtons. And so she wants to create not only her home, but all of Havenston as a sort of haven for women. Uh, and she's been given a copy of, of Christine de Pizan's City of Ladies. And that's been, that, that's been a sort of guiding light for her in trying to determine how and, and where women can live and educate themselves. Um, but the corpse lets her know that not everybody is going to approve. Uh, and she- even though she's setting up this the city of ladies, she soon ends up in royal service. And right, uh, but one of the things I mentioned this in the introduction is it's one of the things I particularly like about this book is that it's not just looking at Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard and yeah. all the rest of it. You know, I am so tutored out. <laughs> it sounds terrible, but I, I only like to read tutor books if they're taking a slightly different tack, you know. And so uh-huh. you are here again uh, because Catherine doesn't go to court. She goes to Hatfield House. Right. And tell us what's at Hatfield House and what takes her there. Well, Hatfield House, um, at, this, at this time, there's only a piece of it left. But at this time, it was, it was actually called Hatfield Palace. And it was this big square place, and uh, Henry had spent some time there as as a boy, um, but he sent his kids there to live. It, it's not that far from London. It's, you know, by train nowadays, you can get there in less than half an hour. But it's far enough out in the country that there's a real sense of, of isolation. And when Catherine arrives, um, she 
she sort of gets there through um, other people's arrangements. She gets there, and her her job is really to look after Elizabeth, um, who's just a little girl at this point, um, and she has been uh, she's been set aside for the new prince Edward, uh, who's just a baby, and we never see him really because he's off in the in the boys' wing, and the girls are in the girls' wing, and they they were kept pretty separate. Um, and Elizabeth and um, Catherine is supposed to oversee Elizabeth's diet and not really doctor her because she's a princess. And um, even though she's called Lady Elizabeth, she's a princess. And so Catherine is really not supposed to touch her. She would have royal physicians. Um, But Catherine is supposed to oversee her diet. And it turns out that Mary Tudor, who's very close to Catherine's age, they're within a year of each other, um, is also living at Hatfield House. And this happened. The, The kids kind of came and went, but there were certainly periods of time when all three of them were there. And Mary is upstairs, and uh, Mary, of course, is bitter and angry. She doesn't eat. She's very thin. Um, She she feels isolated, and she tends to sort of stay upstairs. And there was an attempt by the the people who ran Hatfield House to try to get Mary to come down and eat in the dining gallery with everybody else, and she simply wouldn't um, because she was so angry and bitter. And so here's Catherine, who was raised in a convent, raised to be a nun, but now she's not, and she's sent here to take care of this little Protestant girl. And this little girl is the daughter of the woman she sees as as having ruined her life. Um, and, and yet, she feels some sympathy for this little girl. And then there's Mary Tudor, who's very close to her age, and who she does sympathize with completely. Um, and whose mother, she thought, you know, was really, really treated badly, but she's not really supposed to interact with Mary Tudor because Mary Tudor is still kind of Catholic. Um, so Catherine is sort of caught between this little girl and this, this woman who's her own age, and it really, it really tests her, her loyalty and her faith and her belief systems um, as she's caught between these two daughters, both rejected, we should probably mention that it's it's if not specifically a crime, it may be a crime. It's it's definitely ill advised to be Catholic at this particular point in English history. Yeah, and um, everyone was supposed to to um, take the the oath of supremacy. Um, Mary refused for a long time, and she was really punished for it. Um, you know, she and her mother did not see each other, and you know, for a long time, and then her mother died, and and she. You know, she finally took the oath, but um, she did it with with bitterness and under duress. And her father really mistreated her. He would not, he wouldn't speak to her. He wouldn't have anything to do with her. And uh, by the time every all the kids were at Hatfield House, um, he was sort of ignoring Elizabeth too. And there are stories of of Elizabeth wearing, you know, shabby old clothes. And the women at Hatfield would write to the court and say, "We need fabric to make clothing for this child." And it didn't come. Um, so both the, you know, the little Elizabeth and the grown Mary have, have really been ignored and mistreated by their father. Um, and it's very, very difficult for, for both of them. Um, Mary understands, obviously, a lot more than Elizabeth does. And Elizabeth is, is raised absolutely Protestant. Um, but Mary never lets go of the Catholic Church. Um, she never wants to, even though she's forced to, to renounce it in order to, to win back her father's approval. And she, it's really a double whammy for her because first, I mean, she's raised as a princess. She's the only heir. 
And then her parents divorce and she's suddenly not the only heir anymore. And, and she's declared illegitimate and sent off. And then Elizabeth is um, treated the same way, but what is tends to be ignored is that Mary then is, you know, one step further in the sense that she's now, you know, she's bastard to a bastard in a sense. And, this little boy who happens to be the son of the third wife is uh, all of a sudden the apple of daddy's eye. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine, (laughs) can you imagine being Mary Tudor and having lived for most of your life until you're a teenager as the heir apparent of England, and then suddenly you're supposed to be a servant? (laughs) You know, I mean, she wasn't a servant the way, you know, chambermaids were servants, but suddenly she's supposed to be a lady in waiting. Um, and then her mother dies, and she doesn't get to see her mother, and her father has married somebody else and then had her head cut off and then married somebody else, and she's dead. And meanwhile, your whole existence has been changed. The entire belief system you've grown up with is gone. Um, I, I, I just I sort of ache for Mary Tudor um, because it <laughs> it must have been just, you know, just almost psychologically destructive to her. Yes, and, really. And, and she's yeah. right at that age where you're establishing yeah. her identity. So it's no yeah, wonder that she's, she's so teenager. bitter and angry. Right. Yeah. And yet she has to maintain this very dignified and poised exterior um, because she's still the king's daughter. Um, I just, yeah, it hurts my heart to think about Mary Tudor. So this is the perfect point, I think, to ask you about your research. You mentioned earlier that that the information on nuns' lives was very scattered. So what kinds of sources did you have available to you? The court, I would assume, is fairly well documented. It is. It is. And, you know, there's there's tons and tons written on all of the Tudors, of course, and there's lots of historical fiction about the Tudors. And many, many writers have have centered their, their fiction on the main characters. And I, you know, I think most historical fiction writers try to be very, very accurate when they're dealing with historical events that have been recorded. Um, but I also like to read things that are less common. I, you know, I think that's one of the, one of the ways in which my, my training as a literary person has really been useful to me because oftentimes poets and playwrights and letter writers and um, and, and other sorts of non-official writers record things about people's everyday lives that you don't see in other places. Um, so it's been really useful to me to read letters and biographies, biographies of people who may have been at court but didn't live at court. And also traveling is really useful for me, um, to be in places that have now decayed or closed, that are far away from the very fancy places like, you know, Hampton Court Palace and, and Windsor Castle and those sorts of things, to be in the spaces where people lived and look at what these these buildings, many of which now lie in ruins, um, see what the dimensions of them were, see where they're see where they're situated, see how people's drainage systems worked, where they cooked, where they had fires, where they kept the clothes, where they made the clothes. Um, so you get some sense of what people's everyday lives were like. You know, even reading something like like Shakespeare's plays and looking not at the main characters, but at the, you know, what what would have been called the clown figures, the lower class figures, the songs that people sing, 
um, you get a real sense of what people's everyday lives might have been like. But then you have to fill in a lot of gaps, too, because, of course, chambermaids didn't record their thoughts much. Um, most serving people didn't really record their thoughts that much. Um, so, so there is this one poet. She was actually Elizabethan rather than, um, rather than Henrician, um, and her name was Isabella Whitney. And she was a serving woman. She, she was a serving girl. Um, and we don't even know who she worked for. Um, she was probably born in the 1540s. But in the 1560s, she started writing poems, and she wrote a lot of them to her brother. And they got preserved. And they're all about being a serving woman and losing her job. She lost her job, and she had to go find another way to live. And then she disappears from the, from the record. Um, but, but when you teach literature, you get contact with people like that who are unusual, and they sort of help you fill in what, what life could have been like for, for ordinary people in the 15th and 16th centuries. That's great. Um, that's good to know. I had never heard of this poet, so that's, that's, uh, that's always oh, fun. She's great fun, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the, um, the new book, the one that's coming out, or perhaps has just come out. Okay. Uh, which called, the title is The King's Sisters, and I think right. you're going to read us a passage to explain where that comes from. So I'll just say <laughs> that it's, uh, it involves Anna Cleves, who is actually my right. favorite of Henry the Fourth, Henry the Eighth's wives. I think because she was, other than Catherine Parr, she was the lucky one. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know, poor Anne. But um, I guess before I should read this, I'm just going to read a bit from um, an early chapter. Uh, after the divorce, uh, Anne's title was the King's beloved sister, um, and he he actually, you know, showed quite a lot of affection for her, and she hung out at court. Um, and after after he married Catherine Howard. Um, the ill-fated Catherine Howard, uh, she used to come to court, and she and Catherine Howard were apparently pretty good friends. And the court, when Catherine Howard was queen, got pretty wild. There was a lot of partying and a lot of dancing, and um, I think even Henry got sort of exhausted with it and would sometimes <laughs> leave the party, and, and Anne and Catherine would dance together. Uh, it was very strange. But after Catherine was executed, there was a push, uh, primarily from uh, Anne of Cleves's brother, for Henry to marry her again. That, you know, he had married Catherine Howard, that didn't work out, Catherine got executed, and he should take Anne back. And Anne was sort of expecting this. Um, and, you know, in my mind, you know, Anne was, she was a normal woman, and she had come all the way from her home to marry this king, and she expected to be queen, and she expected to have children. And then suddenly she's the king's beloved sister. Um, and there are, some, there are some recorded letters in which she makes some slightly snarky comments about Catherine Howard, and about Catherine Parr, too. Um, she just wasn't completely happy about being set aside the way that she was. Um, but um, this negotiation, at least on the part of Anne and her brother, to get herself back into, um, into Henry's bed, went on for some time, and that's the time when this novel takes place. Well, before so, you actually go on, I think we should probably mention that it's not like a modern divorce. In other words, because she had married the king and been divorced from the king, 
as long as he was alive, she had to sit in the palace where he left her. And she, I mean, she couldn't what? have affairs or marry anyone else. So, so no, this was really no, the, no. <laughs> so this was really the end of her her life. I mean, she does, in a sense, become a kind it of was. nun, right? Because and she, she and she was not allowed to leave England either. Right, um, and it's not like she can do anything else. She can't go get a right. job at an office or anything like that. Right. And she apparently loved to play cards, and she had an enormous number of dresses, and she had palaces. I mean, Henry, you know, materially treated her well. Um, but but I imagine her as still um, a little bit bitter, even as she sits and plays cards. Um, I've got her at Richmond Palace, which, which, which was one of her houses, and um, one of her ladies for a while was Jane Dudley, um, who was the mother of Guildford Dudley, who married Jane Grey. Um, and Jane had lots and lots of children. So when this scene opens, um, Catherine is working in the kitchens at Richmond Palace, and um, <laughs> and Lady Anne is upstairs with Jane Dudley, and 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 Catherine is summoned. So this is just a little bit from the beginning of the chapter. Mm-hmm. The Lady Anne's voice could not be ignored, even coming from as far away as her game room. I write letter to the king, she was shouting as Catherine came down the front stairs and peeked in. Jane Dudley sat at the table, dealing cards, and the king's sister sat across from her, pounding the arm of her chair as she spoke. He see his error. I will be his wife. I am his wife. This man will be hung like the villain he be. Yes, my lady, said Jane Dudley. She glanced up when Catherine entered. Her chin lifted, and Catherine backed up a step, waiting for instructions. Anne of Cleves's eyes were on the fire that twisted and popped in the hearth. That girl betray him, and now he will see. I will be his wife. I will have the baby now. I'm not very old. You have many babies. Many, said Jane. She laid down a card. You have a comfortable situation here. Not many would choose to change it. You might be content with this palace. I am queen. I should have baby. She raised her hand at Catherine. You have been in the convent. Catherine curtsied and kept her eyes on the floor. Yes, my lady. How do you have baby and the sisters cannot marry? The king granted me leave, said Catherine. Most of the sisters cannot marry under the king's law. Ha! The Lady Anne plucked a card loose, examined it, and threw it down onto the table. And now you are one of the king's sisters, like me. Catherine said, you have hit the target, my lady, and would that we were all beloved as well. Well, that's great. There. <laughs> that leads me right into my next question. So you mentioned we've been talking about the, the position of the nuns in 1535 and 1539. Right. Um, has it changed at all in 1542? No, not really. Um, you know, Henry, after he broke away from the church, it's sort of interesting. It seemed like a really great reform. But Henry was actually quite conservative, even though he, he didn't want to be told what to do. And um, after he broke away from from uh, Rome, he had laws passed that prevented the, um, the nuns from marrying. Now, anybody could get a dispensation, of course. You could, you could you know, have an exception made in extraordinary circumstances, because after all, he's the king, right? Um, but most of, the, most of the nuns could not marry. Um, so, you know, that, again, is, leads to this sort of dire situation that they were in. And you know, as far as we know, a few of them went back to families that took them in, and um, there are some records over in East Anglia of a few of them sort of setting up housekeeping together, like Catherine's City of Ladies. And they aren't married or anything, but um, they, you know, they taught local children, or they embroidered, or they, you know, they made clothing or something. 
Um, but no, their, their options are really, really limited. So I see them as having shifted from being the church's sisters to being the king's sisters. But Anne of Cleves is the only one who is the king's beloved sister. <laughs> the rest of them are just these leftover women. We don't know what to do with them. Right. So, so they're still nuns. In effect, they're just nuns without support. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, how unfair is that? So I understand from your publicist that there's already a fourth Cross in the Crown novel. Um, there is. And yeah. is that what you're writing now, or are you already onto something else? It is. No, I'm, I'm polishing that right now, and it, it is going to be focused on Mary Tudor. Um, and its its working title right now is Queen of Blood, and I don't want to say any more than that. But, um, yeah, Mary Tudor, you know, finally gets her shot at the throne. Okay, that's great. Thank you so much for sharing your time with us. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, and today I've been talking with Sarah Kennedy, author of The King's Sisters. You can find out more about her at www.sarahkennedybooks.com. That's one word, S-A-R-A-H-K-E-N-N-E-D-Y-B-O-O-K-S. Like us on Facebook, search for New Books in Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can also find out more about me and my books at http colon slash slash blog.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about new books in historical fiction.